The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Now the thing about time is that time isn't really real. It's just your point of view. How does it feel for Einstein said he could never understand it all Planets are spinning through space Smile upon your face Welcome to the human race Some kind of love and ride I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down Try not to try too hard, it's just a lovely ride Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. I'm also the editor of Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks newsletter, which you can learn more about by going to my website at miningstocks.com. That's miningstocks, M-I-N-I-N-G-S-T-O-C-K-S.com. This week, our special guest is Mark Faber. He will share his latest views on the global markets. In the second hour, Amber Docker, uh, who specializes in personal finance for the Weiss Group, will be here to tell us about the new credit card legislation and what that may mean for you and me and the economy in general. Then we are going to hear from Ian Foreman. He's the president of Yale Resources. Yale is a company that I think may be incredibly undervalued. Last but not least, deflationist Miss Shedlock will be here to tell us why he is, at as certain as he's ever been, that there is no way the policymakers can overcome the enormous deflationary pressures created by decades of fiat money and debt that has made uh, possible by the absence of a gold standard. My partners Roger uh, Re- Roger Wiegan and Chen Lin are not with me this week. I do expect that they will be back next week. Chen is still on vacation and Roger is nursing a very bad cold. Before I go any further, I want to thank each of you for listening to this show and I also want to thank our corporate sponsors for making this show uh, financially possible. And our sponsors for this first hour are Barkerville Gold, Crocodile Gold Corp, Resource Consultants, American Bonanza, Magellan Resources, Metanor Resources, Merrick's Gold, Inc., Timmins Gold, and Riverside Resources. Gold and Silver Bullion Broker uh, Resource Consultants is headed by 
Pat Gorman, and uh, you can learn more about uh, how to buy gold and silver products by going to buysilvernow.com, that's B-U-Y silvernow.com, or uh, calling Pat's office at 480-820-5877, 480-820-5877. Well, I have a question for you. How has the establishment gotten it so wrong with their investment advice over the past 10 years? The queen of Goldman Sachs, that's Abby Joseph Cohen, has been telling everyone to buy the S&P 500 since January of 2000. Until now, from that point of time, the S&P 500 has actually lost 24%. Never mind the time value of money, never mind the inflation rate erosion of that purchasing power. Even before that, it's down 24% in nominal terms. By contrast, the hypothetical model portfolio in my newsletter has risen by 175% since January 1 of 2000. Well, I'm not claiming any genius, that's for sure, but I guess I must be doing some Something right. How have I and a precious few other investment analysts and my uh, newsletter writers managed to actually increase our investment portfolios during that same time frame? In my view, the answer is quite simple, and it is really because we are not viewing the world through the same lenses as that of the establishment. I'm looking at the markets from an Austrian economic perspective. By contrast, Abby Joseph Cohen and 99% of the pundits on CNBC that she represents are all looking at the world through the eyes of either Keynesian economics or monetarist economics. They are both essentially collectivist, and since all of our policy, all of our policymakers are viewing the world through that same lens, uh, they think that Ben Bernanke and the Obama administration are doing exactly what they should do, and the Bush administration before that. They all applaud those policies, thinking that's exactly the right thing to do, because that's what they learned in college, in the universities. But the inability to question policy when it is obviously failing to work for so many years suggests a national neuroses. After all, the definition of a neuroses is when people are not able to learn from their past. They keep repeating the same mistakes, keep suffering the same consequences, and never learning from it. Also, we might note that Keynesian and monetarist economics suggest that you can have our you can have your cake and eat it too. You don't have to worry about saving too much money before you consume. You can just consume, 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 never worry about working and saving, just consume. It isn't possible to spend and enjoy consumption, however, and work less and do it indefinitely, and now we are starting to find that out in the United States. Our policymakers have been lying to the American people by telling us for a long, long time that we can have our cake and eat it too. And now I think that, as I say, that is coming to an end. So if you tell people, however, that they don't have to save for that car or that home, and you keep telling them that they'll be they'll continue to have credit cards, endless numbers of new credit lines, and people actually started to believe that, and they've gone on and lived their lives accordingly. But now the whole nation has adopted that policy. I think we are in deep, deep trouble. When Nixon took us off the international gold standard, he removed a discipline on human behavior that has made it possible for our monetary system to be so severely abused that the global economy is now on the precipice of a major calamity. Little by little, the big lie was perpetuated. We did live beyond our means for decades, but now it seems as though that may be about to end. So, but the big question in my mind is how is it going to end? I don't think it's a question of it may be about to end. I believe it will end with almost complete certainty. The question is which way do we tip? Towards an inflation or a deflation? Now, last week we had on our show a fascinating discussion between hyperinflationist John Williams and a brilliant market analyst, Bob Hoy, who looks at the market patterns through history. You may want to go back and listen to that show if you have not listened to it. It is archived on our website, on our radio website. But today we have another special guest, 
on this show. He is the world-renowned Barron's Roundtable contributor, Mark Faber. Last I heard, Mark leans towards the inflation side of the argument, but we will ask him uh, to weigh in on that inflation-deflation discussion and probably a bunch of other important questions as well. Mark will be with us in just a few minutes. During the last 30 minutes of this week's hour, uh, this week's show, we are going to hear from Ms. Shedlack, who is absolutely certain that we are facing a deflationary implosion. Mish lines up with other deflationists on this show like Ian Gordon, Bob Hoy, Robert Prechter, to name just a few. All of these folks believe that the debt taken on is so onerous that it cannot be overcome by any amount of printing press money. That's the big difference. The inflationists think it can. The deflationists think the deflationary pressures are so great they cannot be overcome. Some of you may be thinking that I'm spending way too much time discussing inflation and deflation, and that's a fair enough uh, criticism because there are a lot of other very important things to talk about on this show. But I don't think there's anything more crucial with respect to how we invest our money uh, other than this inflation-deflation debate. If we face inflation, then there could be a host of things that you would want to put your money into, including real estate even, and uh, base metals could do extremely well. Agricultural stocks could do very well. Lots and lots of tangible assets could do very well in an inflation, in the hyperinflationary environment. Gold, of course, would do well in an inflationary environment. On the other hand, if we head into a deflationary environment, then there's precious few things that do very well. About the only things that do well in a deflationary depression are gold, gold shares, and cash. So it is true that I'm spending a lot of time on this issue, on inflation and deflation. Today, I think you are going to hear, again, some very interesting ideas on both sides of this argument. As for me, I must confess, I do lean towards the deflation side of this argument. Yes, I know policymakers are pumping huge amounts of money into the banking system, but that money is not being lent out so uh, from the banks. The, the money is put into the banks, but it's not being lent out, so it's not really stimulating the economy. Governments could, in theory, stimulate the demand side of the economy by pumping money into the hands of the masses, but if anything, the tendency is to take it away from the consumers through higher taxes, not only federally, but also at local governments, because they are broke and trying to meet their payrolls. All of this is reflected in consumer confidence, which plunged, if recent, most recent reading, way below expectations. But I will always try to keep an open mind on this issue because it is in my best interest, the best interest of my subscribers and my listeners at this radio show, to always keep an open mind. So you're going to hear both sides of this story on a regular basis uh, until it is resolved one way or another. As I mentioned earlier, we will be talking to a junior gold mining company later in the hour in the program. In fact, uh, it's a company that's selling under 10 cents per share. I think that gold mining is one of the few places that I want to be in the deflationary environment that I anticipate. We are going to be going to Mark Faber after the station break. Uh, we are going to have a commercial break. Um, but I want to remind you before we do that that Chen Lin will be back with us next week. So will Roger Wiegand. Chen Lin has had a remarkable performance, taking $5,400 into $637,000. Uh, from 2003 through the end of last year. You can learn more about Chen's work and you can get a, a low-priced trial subscription from Chen uh, at 718-457-1426. Call my assistant Claudio Bossi at 718-457-1426. You can get a low-priced uh, trial subscription to my newsletter as well as Roger Wiegand's newsletter, Trader Tracks. Again, Claudio Bossi, 718-457-1426. And now it's time for the commercial break, but we'll be right back with Mark Faber the author of the Gloom, Boom, and Doom Report. You don't want to miss Mark's uh, expertise on the markets, so don't go away, but we'll be right back with Mark Faber.
Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the problem so that effective remedies can be prescribed. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to nearly double the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has lost nearly half its value in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. Riverside Resources is exploring for gold deposits in Arizona and Mexico. The company already has three highly prospective targets, any one of which could lead to major gains in Riverside share price if they evolve into viable gold mines. One major gold company and two major players in the resource sector, along with Riverside's CEO, Dr. John Mark Stoudy, are large shareholders and thus are incentivized to build shareholder wealth. That's why Riverside is recommended in my newsletter and is one of my largest personal holdings. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a lovely ride. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questions4taylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm here this week with our special guest, Mark Faber. Uh, Dr. Faber is the author of the Gloom, Boom, and Doom Report. It's a widely read investment newsletter that pulls no punches and providing a unique but highly independent view of the world. Unlike most former Wall Street investment bankers, Mark understands the virtue of gold-backed currency, and he understands how fiat money has led the global economy to the most dangerous decline since the 1930s. I think Mark would agree with that. We'll ask him in a minute. He's my pleasure. Okay. So, uh, Mark, we're, we're short on time here because we screwed up on the, on the times here from our end, but I, I understand we only have 15 or 20 minutes with you. So I want to get to some of the uh, more important issues. You have really uh, recently, I think, come down on the inflation side. You seem to believe that the big dangers investors need to be aware of is a, an erosion of the purchasing power of our currencies. Is that correct? Yes, and not just of the U.S. dollar, but of other currencies as well. 
And um, so we've had, uh, on this program, we've had people on both sides of this issue. We've had, uh, in fact, last week we had a discussion with Bob Hoy, a deflationist uh, analyst out of Vancouver, who really looks at the, he's gone back and looked at 300 years of, of major credit contractions, and he's noted that uh, in, in all of these cases, any effort to try to inflate away the, uh, the, def, the deflationary de, uh, debt load has failed, and in fact, the senior currencies actually became stronger. Well, he, he takes a very bullish view on gold as well in terms of the real purchasing power of gold. That's the one side of the argument. We've also had Robert Prechter here with us also to talk about the deflation side, and you know Mr. Prechter and his views. On the other hand, we had John Williams last week debating Mr. Hoy, uh, economist John Williams, talking about the hyperinflation side of, of things. John believes that we could be heading not just towards a serious sort of 1970s inflation, but something much, much worse than that, something akin to the Weimar Republic. Do you think that's a possibility? Well, first of all, to look at the last 300 years is not very useful because until the creation of the Federal Reserve in 1913, we had uh, essentially a gold standard under which printing money was difficult. So after the creation of the Federal Reserve, as uh, you know, the U.S. dollar has already lost nine. 57% of its purchasing power, but I concede that this loss of purchasing power was offset by interest rates that gave you some return. Mm -hmm. So if in 1913 you put your money on deposits, you probably more or less equalized the loss in purchasing power through the compounding effect of interest rates. But the fact remains simply that prices today are significantly higher than 10 years ago and 20 years ago and 30 years ago. And if you don't believe me, then please go and look at your health care bill mm. and at the educational bill you have to pay for your children compared to what your parents paid for you. Well, that's, uh, that's certainly not hard for me to, uh, to see that, Mark, here living here in New York, as I do, and, and the health care costs are skyrocketing. Uh, almost everything, the uh, housing costs, if you, it's still, even though we've had a pullback in housing prices, still housing in the United States is extremely expensive. So there's no doubt about that we've had a major inflationary event. But on the, on the other hand, we saw, the, we saw what a credit deflation can do after Lehman Brothers collapsed in, in September of 2008. We saw, um, you know, uh, commodity yes, that prices. that is correct. In the private sector, there has been a credit contraction. We still have it. But it's offset by the huge fiscal deficits of the U.S. government, the unfunded pension fund liabilities, and unfunded liabilities arising from Medicare and Medicaid that are growing exponentially at the mm. present time but are not captured by the budget deficit as published by the U.S. government. In addition to that, we have essentially an expansion of the Fed's balance sheet, which is monetization. So all things considered, actually there hasn't been a credit contraction as a percent of the economy. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, uh, that, I guess, is, is absolutely true when you look at it in that And uh, you then look at economists 
like Paul Krugman, who mm -hmm. I think is lobbying for a job in the administration. <laughs> His views, more stimulus, more money printing. You look at Gregory Mankiff of Harvard, create inflation of 6% per annum, so you force people to spend and to invest. And you look at other economists, Stiglitz, don't worry about excessive debt. The U.S. will never default. A default is out of the question because we can print money. Yeah. And Mr. Bernanke is an acknowledged money printer. So with all these characters, believe me, you can create inflation with a disastrous economic environment. In fact, if you don't believe that you have, can have a bad economic environment and high inflation, just look at Zimbabwe in the last 10 years. The output gap, in other words, the economy operates below its potential by about 99%, and yet you had hyperinflation. The economic output has very little to do with inflation. What has to do with inflation is how much money you print. Well, that's for sure. You don't create wealth, but you can create inflation and maybe to an extent the illusion of wealth. Uh, we've had on the other side, of, on the deflationary argument, of course, you, you know Robert Prechter is talking about a sub-1,000 Dow is his, is his call and what he calls a grand super cycle contraction. And um, and then I'm I'm reminded of a remark you made in in your recent newsletter, one of your recent newsletters, in which you you said you doubt very much that we're going to see anything like that in nominal terms. But I'd have to ask you then, what about in real terms? Because James Dines points out that during the 1970s, we had um, you know if you look at the impact of inflation on the Dow Jones, we the Dow lost almost as much purchasing power as it did in the 1930s. Do you see the possibility then of, in real terms, the, the Dow maybe rising even dramatically, but in, in purchasing power, losing a substantial amount of its, of, its, uh, of its value? Well, in the 1970s, the following happened. In real terms, inflation adjusted, the Dow peaked out in 1966, and then it went down by precisely 75% into August 82, mm -hmm. at which point, the Dow at 800 was no higher than it had been in 1964. Mm. That is correct. Mm -hmm. If you look at other inflationary periods, like in Mexico, 1979 to 1988, the entire Latin American continent between 1979 and 1988, and the Weimar hyperinflation between 1918 and 23. In nominal terms, these markets went ballistic in the case of Mexico from the low in 79 to the low in 1988. It went up 139 times in local currency. But in dollar terms, it went up only 25%. And had you taken your money out of Mexico over the entire period, you would have been much better off by being in dollar cash or dollar equities or dollar bonds. Mm -hmm. So it is entirely conceivable that the market goes up in nominal terms, but it declines in real terms. Mm -hmm. But what I object to Mr. Prechter's view is that he says, okay, the Dow will go to a thousand and gold will collapse and all that. So what you should do is to buy U.S. Treasury bills. Mm. I can tell you when all this happens, 
the U.S. government won't be able to pay its debts anyway. So the one thing I wouldn't do is to buy U.S. Treasury bills or Treasury bonds. Mm -hmm. Well, certainly, as John Williams has pointed out in our uh, discussion last week uh, or a couple of weeks back, uh, John pointed out that all of those obligations that you pointed out the U.S. government has to its uh, retirees, uh, health care benefits, and, of course, Mr. Obama is trying to add more to that, but the Social Security and Medicare and all of those obligations, Williams points out that even if uh, the income was taxed at 100%, it would not be enough to fund those those liabilities. Yeah. And and yes. so one wonders... I agree with him. I okay. agree with him. It's too late in the game. Yes. The only way to, to kind of postpone the problem further and to send it off to the Republicans for Mr. Obama is to print and print and print. Yes, it, it, I mean, either either the government's going to renege on its obligations in mass, in, in which case you would expect a revolution of sorts, or, um, or, or as you say, it will it will re, it will deliver the the, um, the nominal payments, but there will be no value for it. So, will doctors continue to will doctors continue to service their patients if they're getting nothing in real value for it? What a mess do we have, Mark? Well, it's a wonderful world where people lived under the illusion of wealth for the last 10 years because of money printing, home prices went up and the stock market recovered and so forth. And it's conceivable that with more money printing, you can get here and there another asset bubble. Maybe the stock market takes off. But again, my view would be that if that happens, the dollar will lose value and maybe not against other currencies because the other currencies are not much better. But I suppose it would lose value against precious metals. Okay, other currencies are not much better, as you point out. Um, we have the European situation now. The euro was strong until not just a, a few a few weeks ago, actually, or a month, a couple of months back. Now we're seeing Greece in trouble, and they say Portugal and Spain and various other countries in the eurozone are in big trouble. What's your outlook for Europe and the Eurozone? Well, actually, what happened is that the U.S. dollar was weak from 2001 to 2007, early 2008. And in 2008, the dollar strengthened, but asset prices went down. And then beginning of 2009, February, the dollar begins to weaken, and then asset prices, commodities notably, and stock prices around the world become strong again. And more recently, the dollar, after having rallied to 151 against the euro on November 25th, which was a false breakout move because it was out of a rising wedge, the dollar has now strengthened Again, in other words, the euro has weakened from 151 to 134. At 134, the euro is deeply oversold. And if the Germans and the other stronger countries, I mean, relatively stronger countries in the eurozone, decide not to bail out Greece, I think this would be favorable for the euro. So I would look for a rebound here in the euro and U.S. dollar weakness, but I wouldn't look for new lows in the U.S. dollar. In other words, 
I think the US dollar bottomed out at 151 against the euro. And that 151 level against the euro we won't see again. And after a rebound in the euro in the next couple of weeks, I think we'll see a renewed weakness in the euro. Do you expect that they will bail out Greece? No, I think there's a chance that they won't bail it out. That's why there could be a, a euro rebound mm-hmm. for a short I think time. A bailout for, the, for, for, for Greece would be rather euro negative, whereby, as you know, markets are a discounting mechanism. So a lot of bad news about Greece has already been discounted by the weakness in the euro from 151 to 134 recently. Uh, Mark, you pointed out that after the uh, problems of 2008-2009, the Federal Reserve uh, and some of the officials in the Fed actually seemed to exercise a little bit of humility, perhaps, and, and suggested that maybe they were, you know, they were saying, well, maybe we were a bit too permissive on the monetary policy, or maybe we didn't watch uh, asset prices enough, and we should have been more cautious and more careful. But then you noted in um, uh, recently a speech that Mr. Bernanke made in, on January 3rd, um, you suggested that all hope of uh, reformation at the Fed can now be set aside after Bernanke's speech to the American Economic Association in Atlanta, Georgia, on the 3rd of January. Would you care to comment on that a bit? Well, basically, in my opinion, sadly, I repeat very sadly, Mr. Bernanke does not seem to have learned anything about the causes of the crisis. He may be, as Bill Bonner recently pointed out, an expert on the depression years of the 1930s, except for the fact that he doesn't know what caused the depression, Mm. which was excessive credit growth in the 1920s, which has been very well documented by one of the 20th century best economists, Irving Fisher, So I think that the really troubling part is that Mr. Bernanke, in his January 3rd speech of this year, which was monetary policy and the housing bubble, he does not take any responsibility at all for having created the housing bubble. And so if he tolerated the housing bubble, the next step will be that he will tolerate much, much higher inflation rates, inflation defined as an increase in the cost of living. And that is the goal of the administration of Mr. Mankiv, of Mr. Krugman, and the whole lot, to have interest rates on the short end that are below nominal GDP growth and below the cost of living increases. And that will lead to more and more inflation down the road. So, and I agree with John Williams. The danger is actually that we will have extremely high inflation rates at some point. Mm-hmm. But so far, the so-called stimulus that's been put into effect has, has seemingly not taken hold. It's gone into asset prices, arguably, uh, into hedge funds, perhaps to the banks, uh, Goldman Sachs boys, uh, your friend there, Abby Joseph Cohen, probably takes home her big bonus. But <laughs> yes, uh, I'm happy but... for her. <laughs> she's a nice lady. I don't think she knows very much about markets, but I think she's a nice person. But what I want to say is precisely 
because the stimulus and Robert Barrow, an economist at Harvard, who actually makes some sense, he wrote an article on February 23rd in the Wall Street Journal, which is really worth to read because it highlights the problems associated with interventions, especially with fiscal measures, in other words, with government spending. And his conclusion is basically that it didn't work. So because it didn't work, come the Paul Krugmans of this world who say the stimulus was not sufficient. Yeah. And add Stiglitz, we need another stimulus package, another one that won't work. But each time you have more and more stimulus, you create a bigger problem down the road because you add to government debt that will eventually need to be monetized. Mm -hmm. That is the issue. So it's an accelerating rate of speed that this debt is increasing and the monetization Correct. of that debt. And it's, Correct. Uh, so it's either, I mean, there's no way we can have an, a soft landing, is there, Mark? I beg your pardon? There's no way that we could have a soft landing. It seems to me that the deflationists argue that this depression, this, this debt is growing so you know, inexorably and so rapidly that, that the debt itself is deflationary, and therefore, unless you keep printing money at a sufficiently accelerated rate, but you are going to implode into a deflation. That is what they are going to do. And all I'm saying, one day there will be deflation when mm -hmm. the, the entire system collapses. Mm -hmm. But before you go from A to this scenario of the complete breakdown of the capitalistic system, mm -hmm. knowing how the governments work, they'll print and print and print. And the more they'll print, the worse the economic conditions will become, and people will become disgruntled. So the next step is to go to war. And then you really take off in inflation. And yeah. so one day the deflationist will be right. But you understand, I have sympathy. I like Robert Prechter. He's a friend of mine. Mm -hmm. But if I put my money all in treasury bills in the U.S., mm -hmm. by the end of the inflation I foresee before he's right, my U.S. dollars will be worthless anyway. So I'd rather be in gold and take some risk in a strong currency or... A partial hedge, a partial hedge is not a perfect hedge, mm -hmm. but a partial hedge, better than government bonds and cash, are probably equities. Okay, that's, that's fair enough. Because and, even and in hyperinflation times, mm -hmm. your equities don't become worthless, mm -hmm. but your cash and bonds become worthless. That has to, has to be understood very clearly. Sure, because your equities represent something of tangible value. Sure, and companies, during highly inflationary times, they don't do particularly well because then the government comes in and says, oh, we have price controls for this and price controls for that and this and that. And Mr. Obama is the greatest interventionist in the history of economics without any knowledge. That is the issue. Interventions I don't accept, but if it's carried out by someone who has some brains mm -hmm. economically, it's mm -hmm. more acceptable than from a complete empty suit. Well, you know, Mark, it seems to me what you were saying is, is exactly right. Uh, Krugman and, and uh, Steiglitz and these fellows are all suggesting that we need to do more, 
and that it wasn't that the policy was wrong, it's just there wasn't enough of it. But that was the same argument that's been used by Bernanke about, about the Great Depression, too. But if you go back and read Murray Rothbard's book yeah, sure. on the deflation, on the Depression, you realize that they did everything the same, everything they could. These they academics the... will make sure that the U.S. goes bankrupt. That I guarantee you. Yeah. Well, Mark, you're talking about these problems around the world. Where do you put your money, then? I know in a recent newsletter you talked about India. You visited India, and you're very bullish on India longer term. You talk about Brazil. You talk about China. I think Vietnam is another country you like a lot. So let's say, where would Mark Faber put his money? It wouldn't be in U.S. Treasuries. It would be in gold, for sure. I'm quite confident in saying that. It would be where? In some stocks, in some of these, say, blue-chip stocks in some of these emerging countries? Let's put it this way. You know, I cannot give a, a basket of pills for every investor <laughs> because every investor is different, has sure. different objectives, has a different age, has a different cash flow, and has already some assets, whether in real estate, cash, bonds, stocks, or whatnot. So it's difficult to advise, generally speaking. But I would say, I think today an investor should accumulate gradually some gold. Now, can gold, after having peaked out around uh, 1,220, uh, decline and correct to around 950 to 1,050? Possible. You know, this kind of volatility you have to live with. If you can't take a 20 to 30% volatility in today's market, then stay in your bed and don't even think about investing. <laughs> but uh, in general, I would say investors should own precious metals. Mm-hmm. Now, should they own with 10% of their money or their assets precious metals or with 30%, that would depend on their other assets. Say, if someone owns farmland, to some extent, I'm not saying entirely, but to some extent, he's protected against inflation. And I believe that the housing market in the U.S., it could go down another 10, 20%. But by international standards, it has declined quite a lot already. And with all the money printing, I think I would consider looking at some real estate in the U.S. Mm-hmm. In addition to that, I would look at having more money in emerging economies eventually, because now the emerging economies are roughly 50% of world's GDP. The emerging economies consume more oil than the developed countries, and so forth and so on. So to gradually shift money into emerging economies. The reason I'm not saying you should do it tomorrow is that I think that this year the Chinese economy will slow down or that it could even crash. It's not a prediction, but I wouldn't rule it out. Mm-hmm. If that happens, the emerging economies will get hit very hard, whereas then the S&P, where it goes down or up, could outperform emerging markets, like they, the S&P outperformed emerging markets in 2008. It also went down, but it went down less than emerging economies. So there, there are lots of complexities involved, but in general, I would say... I would, aside from a short-term bounce, I think U.S. government bonds here can rebound for the next, say, two, three months. Mm-hmm. But aside from this rebound, I would gradually look to sell government bonds. And I would also be extremely careful about corporate bonds mm-hmm. because they have rebounded dramatically mm-hmm. from the lows in October 2008. 
And I don't see much Jews any longer in corporate bonds in the U.S. Maybe there's here and there a special situation. Mm -hmm. But by and large, I'd be a bit careful about corporate bonds. Okay. Out of the different asset classes, bonds, cash, stocks, gold, and precious metals, Mm -hmm. and industrial commodities, I would lean towards owning precious metals and equities with a bias towards more overseas equities than U.S. equities. Okay. Some very good advice there. Mark, just one quick question. If China good, were we'll to... see in a year's time. Yes, well, that's... Yes, we'll see. <laughs> Nobody knows for sure, but uh, yeah. certainly you have some words of wisdom that lots of people um, uh, give a lot of value to. And uh, speaking of your words of wisdom, could you tell our listeners how they can follow your work? I know you're on television a lot, but aside from that, on a regular basis... Well, basically, I have a website, uh, com. And there is a market commentary that appears once a month there. And then uh, there is the written report, the gloom, boom, and doom report, which people can also subscribe to mm-hmm. by sending uh, an email through the website. Excellent. Well, I, I do uh, know of that newsletter. It's an excellent newsletter, well worth the subscription price, I would uh, hasten to add. Well, so thank you, Mark, so much for your time. My well, apologies my again for, for uh, getting the no time problem, wrong here. No problem. But it's, uh, it's greatly appreciated. Any time you have, we're, we're always willing to, uh, to hear what Mark Faber has to say. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Very Folks, kindly. we'll be right back uh, with you after the break uh, with our next guest. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. American Bonanza Gold's project, located in Arizona, is scheduled for production in 2010. American Bonanza Gold announced the positive results of its recent feasibility study at its 100% owned Copperstone Gold Mine. The mine is estimated to produce an average of 45,000 ounces of gold annually. At the current spot gold price, this will result in an IRR of 120%. Join the gold bull market. Invest in American Bonanza Gold. Visit the website at AmericanBonanza.com for more exciting information. Don't miss this great opportunity. Entrepreneurial Insights is your weekly excursion into the world of business ownership. Presented by Sunbelt Business Brokers, the leading business brokerage and intermediary firm in the world. Entrepreneurial Insights will examine critical issues that impact both existing and prospective business owners. If you own or want to own a small business, listen for Entrepreneurial Insights with John Davies, Dino Boccianello, and Matt Ottaway. Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answers Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love. 
You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. I want to apologize again to Mark Faber, who we just spoke to uh, from his home in Thailand. And uh, to you, my listener, for our abbreviated discussion with Mark, Mark did give us 28 minutes of his time, but uh, he would have been available um, for longer if we hadn't uh, uh, messed up on the time schedule. But in any event, we're grateful to Mark for 28 minutes of his, uh, of his brilliant insights. In any event, so as not to shortchange you any more than I already have, um, I have managed to get another special guest, Pat Gorman, to come on to our show to add his words of wisdom. Pat's company, Resource Consultants, is a sponsor to the show, and they are a uh, broker of precious metals and somebody you should really learn to know. You can uh, learn more about Pat's company, uh, Resource Consultants, by uh, by going to um, what is that, Pat? You can go to you go to our website. It's called buysilvernow.com. All one word: b u y s i l v e r n o w dot com. Or just give us a call if you want to at eight hundred four nine four four one four nine. We do things the new fashioned way and the old fashioned way. Okay, Pat. My apologies because I did uh, I did mention your website at the start of the show, and uh, I guess when you get over fifty, there are a lot of things wear out. One of the things that wears out <laughs> is your memory, and we we won't go into the other things that wear out uh, when you get over fifty. But uh, thanks again. So that's your rude introduction, but thank you, Pat, for coming on. Oh yeah, our show again. and what is your name? <laughs> <laughs> I forget. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah. So anyway, um, call in to Pat and uh, to his company and learn more about uh, about his services. Well, Pat, welcome. I'm I'm really glad that you could be with us. Um, we I know that you uh, haven't been feeling well. Are you pretty much back up to par now? Um, yes, I uh, had my last procedure on Monday, and mm-hmm. I'm starting to feel pretty darn good. But I figured by next Monday I'll be completely like I was 20 years ago. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, looking forward to seeing you down down in Arizona in a few weeks, and we'll get to that a little later. But sure. we just had we just had Mark Faber on. Uh, Mark uh, discussed the the pathology of our global economy, and he noted that policymakers are not fixing anything. They are, if anything, de- only delaying the problem and making it worse. Mark acknowledged that printing money means more debt, which creates even greater insolvency, which in turn prompts the idiocy of the policymakers to print even more money. But to keep the economy from plunging over the abyss of a deflationary depression, they must print more and more faster and faster at an ever-accelerating rate of speed. But that is exactly what Mark thinks they will do. Others on our show, we've had uh, James Turk, Rob Kirby, uh, William Baker, to name a few, who have all more or less agreed, um, John Williams last week too, uh, have agreed that the policymakers are, you know, hopped aboard, that they're really on a runaway freight train, that they're going to print and print and print until, and feed the engine with more fuel until we have some sort of a runaway inflation. Now, Mark said the policymakers are certainly not following any kind of traditional school of economics. He said we have the Austrian school, forget it, they're not even close to that. We have the Keynesians. He says they're not even following the Keynesians or the monetarists. He says what they're following is the Zimbabwe school of economics. And 
he agrees then with John Williams that we, who was on our show last week, we had a very interesting discussion with John Williams and Bob Hoy, who talked about, who really debated this inflation-deflation issue. Well, John thinks that we are heading towards a hyperinflation starting as early as this year, and Mark says, I think that's possible, too. Pat, have you any thoughts? Well, you know, inflation, deflation, the number one thing that I need to say is, you know, I've, I've, I've been asked this question, you've been asked this question, it's been an ongoing debate, Jay, for the last at least five, six years, okay? Sure. And the answer is yes, we're having both. I've, I've talked about this time and time again, we're having inflation, deflation. The key, however, is this, and I'll get into where I believe everything's going to go in, in just one second, but the key is this, is whether we go into massive hyperinflation or whether we go into massive deflation, our currency is sus- Our currency, because of the debts and deficits, is extremely suspect. So you have to ask yourself, everybody says, well, deflation, I don't need to own gold. Inflation, I need to own gold. Let me tell you, Jay, you need to own gold either way. I mean, you know you know as well as I do, probably one of the the most performing gold stocks uh, during the last depression was what, homestake mining? Absolutely. So, you know, the reality is, is not necessarily what, what is going to happen tomorrow afternoon, but the reality is, is how can we protect ourselves? How can we uh, survive and thrive? What can we do with the little bit of money they've left over for us that we've worked our butt off for for 30 years or more? What can we do with that money to maybe get through this phase? But the reality is, is one says Zimbabwe, right now if you want to get most recent, you can look at Greece and Greece's problems with their debt. Uh, Bernanke came out just, what, day before yesterday and said, you know, the, he mentioned the, the Greece, the Greek uh, scenario, what's going on with too much debt, and he even said, you know, you've got to have to stop this debt or the Federal Reserve won't even play with you anymore. Mm. So the reality is, is they're going to print money, but here's the deal. Hyperinflation, you know as well as I do, Jay, and many people listening today have probably never heard me say this before. Many people have. We are going into an inflationary depression. You want to talk about Zimbabwe? That was an inflationary depression. There wasn't jobs created. There was not, you know, hyperinflation is price and wage inflation. Go yeah. back to the hyperinflation of Germany. They're paying their employees daily because daily their employees got a raise. Mm-hmm. Anybody that had a job. Well, so price and wage inflation, massive price and wage inflation, daily price and wage inflation is hyperinflation. I see inflation coming at us like there's no tomorrow because of what they're doing, simply because if no, nothing else, your, your current dollar currency we use, Jay, is going to be worth less and less and less and less and less and quite possibly until it's worth nothing anywhere around the world. But there's no job creation. There's no, there's no part of the price inflation, excuse me, the price inflation, but there's no wage inflation. Employment may hit 20-30%. That's an inflationary depression is what it is. That's the worst of all worlds. That's where you will continue to have inflation, deflation. Inflation, the cost of everything, that a loaf of bread could be $10 a loaf, and poor uh, Johnny Paycheck doesn't have 10 bucks to buy a loaf of bread. Yeah, that I agree is probably the worst scenario of all is a uh, an inflationary depression. So you're you're making the di- you're differentiating between a hyperinflation in which you have some growth in the economy and uh, job growth, or at least people are able to keep their jobs, as opposed to an inflationary depression where everybody, where people lose their jobs and prices still go up. Exactly. It's, it's more, you could say, instead of hyperinflation, the word should be used like, you know, hyperinflation is what everybody remembers, Germany in a wheelbarrow full of dollars to buy a loaf of bread or whatever, marks. But you can go to France, and that was called a fiat currency collapse. Mm-hmm. And that is basically what we're in the midst of right now, as far as I'm concerned, is a fiat currency collapse. How long can the largest 
debtor nation in the world continue to start to double and redouble. We all talk know about compounding, right? Well, compounding is really kicking in now. You know, it's one thing to have a hundred thousand dollar debt to two hundred thousand, but when you got a trillion to two trillion, two trillion to four trillion, four trillion to eight trillion, and going that way, it gets exponential. So the reality is, it's, it's more. I believe that we're going to have a fiat currency collapse in this country. Well, that's that's very frightening. I, I would, uh, if you were comparing where we're going with Zimbabwe, uh, and that's the inflationary depression scenario that you think we may be heading towards. In Zimbabwe, there was a very interesting video not long ago uh, on the internet that I saw. They, it was a documentary. They were showing how people were going in out into the country, looking for specks of gold into you know on the rocks and in the formations where they could, wherever they could find it. And they, sure. People going out with spoons and they would get a couple of grains of gold that would put food on their table for the day. And they were lamenting the fact that the old folks were too old; they couldn't, they didn't have the physical capability of going out there and getting it. But you know, I'm wondering, Pat. We know that during the Great Depression, as you pointed out, gold was a savior, a portfolio savior. If you had home stake, you could have uh, basically with 15% of your portfolio. I crunched the numbers. 15% of your portfolio, you could have avoided uh, losing anything in the in the market. I mean, if 85% in the Dow and 15% in home stake, you would have been underwater a couple of years, a little bit, but you nothing like the 90% that the Dow decreased at one point in time. Now, if we look at, so that's the deflationary depression, and as Bob Hoy has pointed out on this show, uh, during that kind of an environment, the real price of gold tends to rise dramatically. So the, for those people that think you don't need gold in a depression, I would point out that the real price of gold, what an ounce of gold will buy, rises very dramatically compared to everything else. We're seeing that happen. If you want to look at the post-Lehman Brothers collapse, that has definitely happened. You can buy twice as much of the Rogers Raw Material Fund now that you could buy before Lehman Brothers collapse in September of 08. So that's the deflationary side. Now we look at the uh, hyperinflationary side, the Zimbabwe side. My question, uh, Pat, has to do with mining. Can mining companies make money in a deflationary, uh, in an inflationary depression, as you're pointing out? And I'm thinking, yes, look what's happening in Zimbabwe. Well, yes. I mean, you know, depending on the cost of production, that's yeah. really what a, a, any kind of company, whether it's a mining company or making widgets, Jay, right. you know, if their cost of production doesn't rise exponentially and the price of gold rises exponentially, mm-hmm. of course they can make money. They right. can make money hand over fist. Right. So if they get a really decent locked-in production cost, which obviously fuel will be going up and other things will be going up, but, you know, right now if you've got $1,000 gold and you've got a company that has got a production cost of maybe $500 an ounce, um, you know, that's... That is all going to be relative. That's not going to change. They're still going to make that kind of profit, I believe. Don't you? Yeah. But, yeah. you know, let me, let, me, let me interject here what you just said earlier, yeah. which is really important. You crunched the numbers from the Depression, mm-hmm. where if you had 15%, you would, get, you would have got through the Depression very nicely, broke right. even, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Guess what, Jay? We didn't know. We didn't have that knowledge during the Depression. Yeah. They didn't know this was coming to them during the Depression. Yeah. With yeah. the instantaneous information these days, we now know it's coming one way or the other, okay? Mm-hmm. We know that one way in massive inflation, massive deflation, maybe both, are coming at us full speed. If we know that, well, wouldn't we maybe understand that if 15% got us through it, then maybe 30 or 35, 50% of that into that, or just walk away from the Dow completely for a while, would even put us in a better survival stance and prosper? Well, yeah, people will know that, but take the time to think about it. But frankly, I think most people are not are not really coming to grips with the severity of the problem, and I don't think that our policymakers are necessarily interested in people understanding the depths of the problems that we're facing, which is why I guess, you know, people that are able to think outside the box, Pat, as I'm suggesting they need to do, and why, you know, why you have a radio show, why I have a radio show, why a lot of the people we know are doing what they're doing, 
because we can see, uh, just taking a look at history and looking what happens when you print endless amounts of money, it creates all kinds of malinvestment. It creates all kinds of dislocations in the economy and lots and lots of tears down the road. So the question is, you know, we need to be, I mean, the good, the good, part of this uh, of this issue this debate if you will the inflation deflation thing is that gold works in both cases so um, gold and silver too i would add absolutely There's now no question. Pat, pat we only have a couple of minutes i think three minutes or so left here but your wealth protection conference is coming up uh, soon could you tell our listeners again the dates of that and who sure, are it's, the it's, participants right it's march 26th and 27th that's a friday and saturday it starts at three o'clock on friday afternoon we have four speakers on friday five speakers on saturday you're going to be there roger wiegand's going to be there ian mcavity's going to be there rick mayberry's going to be there uh... arch crawford's going to be there sinclair no i mean these you you want anybody listening today really wants with the real skinny of this i mean true skinny of this you need to check out you need to call us at 800-494-4149 we only make room for 200 people as you know we make it a very comfortable uh conference jay it's not mm-hmm. like you squeeze people in uh it's, it's a very comfortable conference extremely intense and extremely gives you every side of the aspect that you need it's not there to you know we don't we're not there to hawk our wares we're there to educate you mm-hmm. and uh, we only have about 36 seats left they told me this morning so oh, well, uh, so people better get on the ball i, I, I would get on the ball the biggest problem that we have we have it at the embassy suites you can go onto the website buysilvernow.com and learn all about it but you do have to call us to sign up because we have to have a physical uh, thing take your credit card Amer- um anything but american express i guess right. so but yeah it's it's 200 for the two days it's fan- it's a uh, we we cut the price in half this year so it used to be oh. 400 dollars. oh i see well it was a great deal at 400 bucks i think us. it was a great deal at 400 bucks but you know, I just wanted, that's why I think we're filling so fast this year is because we wanted so many people that, you know, it was kind of an edge for them. They didn't understand it. But mm-hmm. anybody that's been there, as you know, Jay, thinks $400 or $4,000. i have never had anybody come to me and say, I didn't get my dollars worth, you no, know. I'll tell you, and, and it's, a, it's a lovely hotel. There's a lot of great food that's thrown into the deal, too, folks. And if you like food, well, you're going to get intellectual food, which is much more valuable than the, than the stuff you get otherwise. But it's a really nice time, and it's one, my wife will be going with me. She always enjoys this show very much. It's just a lot of nice people and people who are able to think outside the box who are willing to go to this show. And uh, I think you, uh, the listeners will not be disappointed if they show up at, the, at your show, Pat. I'm looking so much forward to meeting up with some of the other speakers, too. I really, uh, Rick Mayberry and Arch Crawford, Ian McAvity, these guys are really fantastic, really very, very bright guys that have a lot to say. Well, that's just about all the time we have right now. We're going to have to go to commercial break, but don't go away. We're going to have Amber Docker with us to talk about the new credit card legislation and what that may mean for you and our economy. We will also be talking to Alan Foreman. He's the CEO of Yale Resources Limited. And last but not least, we will round out this week's program with some thoughts from Mish Shedlack. And I'm sure Mish will have some uh, controversial things to say on the deflation side. We're going to bring up some of the Mark Faber's ideas and, and see what Mish has to say. You're going to want to listen to the next hour, so don't go away. We'll be right back. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network.
I am Jay Taylor, your host for Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Gold has risen from $250 to well over $1,200 since 2002. That has greatly improved gold mining profit margins and profits for gold investors. But mining stocks are very risky, so you do need to know which stocks have the best chance of success. I believe Magellan Minerals, traded Toronto under the symbol MNM, is one such company. That's why it is a top pick of my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Go to MagellanMinerals.com website to learn more. Tune in on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time for Healing the Grieving Heart, the program that takes you on a journey through grief after the death of a child. Join Dr. Gloria Horsley, marriage and family therapist and bereaved parent, while she interviews and discusses with other bereaved parents and siblings how they have coped with the death of a child and gone on to create and realize new dreams. So tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time for Healing the Grieving Heart with Dr. Gloria Horsley, right here on Voice America Health & Wellness. What's it like behind closed garage doors, where the decisions are made that change motorsports? You'll find out on The Race Reporters, because host Michael Knight has been there. He's a 40-year industry insider and award-winning writer and publicist. Each week, Knight brings together the country's top journalists and newsmakers, and their insights will make you a better race fan. The Race Reporters, Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, on the Power Up Channel. From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love ride. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. Again, I want to thank you for listening to this show, and I want to thank our sponsors for the second hour of the show, because without them, it would not be financially possible to bring you Uh, all sorts of interesting information, I think very informative and uh, important information with the likes of Mark Faber and uh, Pat Gorman and our our next guest who's going to be with us in a minute, and I'll reveal who she is in just a second. But the sponsors for this show are Barkerville Gold, Crocodile Gold Corp., Resource Consultants, Western Pacific Resources, Pediment Gold Corp., Silvercrest Mines, Sand Gold, and Hawthorne Gold. Well, our next... uh, our next guest is Amber Docker. She is the personal finance expert for Money and Markets, published by the Weiss Group. And I have to tell you that I really enjoy the Weiss Group as a whole. They have a lot of very, very important information, information that I think has helped a lot of people. And they can, uh, they can gain a lot of this information without paying anything for it. It's a free service. And uh, Amber is Really, she's, she provides down-to-earth money management methods for the everyday person. So uh, that's me. I consider myself an everyday person, so I'm going to be anxious to hear what she has to say. She is the product manager for, at the Weiss Research Group. Uh, before moving into her current role, uh, Ms. Docker was a financial research analyst providing research for numerous Weiss publications while monitoring the performance of the newsletter recommendations as well. And She previously worked... Um, 
she worked for Bloomberg LP as a data analyst and later as a team leader with the responsibility for a broad range of research activities, including examination of domestic and euro bond floating rate notes and dividends on preferred stocks. So she's been uh, very active and also has been uh, in the media and CNN radio, CNBC, Market Watch, Fox News, and, and many other places over the years. So welcome, Amber, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Oh, thank you for having me, Jay. Well, we've, uh, you're going to tell us about the new credit card legislation, and we've come off a period of time when credit of every kind was not only readily available to anyone with a heartbeat, but we might sometimes get one or two or even three envelopes a week inviting us to just sign on the dotted line and, and pull out that credit card and start spending and enjoying ourselves for today. Um, now we can see now that so much money was pumped into the banking system, and it was put to bad use, obviously. people. Uh, so I want you to address the new credit card legislation and what that is likely to mean for many, if not most, consumers. And I'm wondering if you can first give us some idea, though, about default rates on credit cards at this point in time. Is it a real problem? And if you could give us an idea of what the extent of that problem is. Well, actually, actually, a report just came out that shows that individuals are paying off their credit cards. The delinquency rates have eased. Oh, good. Yes, that came out on February 22nd. Mm-hmm. So, um, actually, U.S. credit card sector posted mixed performance in January, but uh, charge-offs did rise. But it's showing that an early stage of delinquencies are showing a decline in the third month for the third month in a row. So, individuals are really um, hunkering down examining their personal finances, seeing what debt they have and what uh, uh, income, discretionary mm-hmm. income they have on hand to try and pay down what debt they do have. So there is a positive sign there. What do, how does it stand, though, still his, from a historical point of view? Are the delinquency rates still very high? Delinquency rates overall are high just based on the economy that we're living in. We're, mm-hmm. We have the jobless rate, of course, it's high. Mm-hmm. We have housing problems. Mm-hmm. So as a re- but that mixture is just uh, it's, it automatically results in a person not being able to um, pay off their debts sure. in a timely fashion, and especially mm-hmm. if you're out of a job, your credit card may be your lifeline for just buying everyday expenses. Yeah. And if and with this new credit card legislation, there it is offering some type of protection uh, for consumers, everyday consumers, so um, they're not faced with uh, hardships going forward. Mm-hmm. Do you have a sense as to whether you know how large a problem that is where people rather than saving money for a for a rainy day as we used to say have have really started just uh, assuming that that credit card was always going to be there and they could always use that to to buy their life's essentials is that is that a large percentage of our population that falls into that into that category would you say well it used it could have been it used to be actually mm-hmm. but um as you know since last year after the, the the economic meltdown. There's been a change in our spending, so personal spend and personal sa- change in our spending. So their mm-hmm. personal savings rate has improved um, mm-hmm. considerably, considering it's always been in negative territory. Now we're seeing positive territory. Yeah. So people are trying to make a, a shift um, to thrift. So there's a change in um, spending in your in their lifestyles overall. Mm-hmm. So is that something that um, you expect? I mean, I guess it really boils down to what your forecast is on the on the economy, and I guess that's not really what you do so much as some other people in the Weiss group that uh, give their opinions on that. And it is, I listen to some of them. It's not all that, not all that positive in many ways. Uh, I think there's a lot of concerns about state and local governments having problems yet and laying people off. Uh, the manufacturing sector I hear is coming back a bit, but you have, 
you know, a lot of concerns. Um, uh, you know, the housing sector you mentioned is still in trouble. Um, so what are, what are your thoughts, if you have any, about the future? I mean, are, you're hopeful. It sounds like you're hopeful that consumers are hunkering down. They're starting to pay off their credit. They, um, but are they saving any money, or they're not at that point yet where they can? Those who can save money, who have jobs to do so, are making that um, change to save more, more than they have been, which could have been nearly nothing. Uh, After we went through the economic downturn, it just proves the fact that individuals see that there needs to be a change in our lifestyle. No more days of easy credit. Credit going forward will be harder to get and more expensive to to maintain. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and that means that there has to be a a change in how we live our lives, what Mm -hmm. we spend our money on, Mm -hmm. and, and it's going to be different from the days going forward. And it's an overall feeling. If you look at the Consumer Confidence Index that just came out um, sure. recently, it shows that individuals do see that there's still pessimism. It still exists in mm-hmm. our economy. Mm-hmm. And going forward, we're, this is a, at least a year, of course, more than a year before we even see uh, a change in that type of um, sentiment. Mm-hmm. So people are, are, are pessimistic uh, for good reasons. I mean, they're looking around, they're losing their jobs, they're seeing their neighbors lose their jobs. Um, the jobs that are out there aren't paying what they once did in many ways, uh, in many cases. Um, so what can you tell us about the new credit card legislation? What, sure. is it, what does it mean for the average Joe Schmo? <laughs> for, yes, for the average person. It shows that the Credit Card Act of 2009 is um, making card issuers doing to, to do the following. They must issue notices of any changes in our credit card accounts at least 45 days in advance. So if they're going to raise an interest rate, they'll give you 45 days notice um, for you to act on on it, if you, maybe mm-hmm. you want to opt out of that card altogether, or at least prepare for it in advance. Um, they also must increase the rates only on any new charges that we make while the old rate applies to existing balances, which is a good thing. Um, if you have an existing balance that you've had for several months or maybe a couple of years, you know that that interest rate, um, if it's fixed, will remain the same. And if you do make any new purchases, you have to be prepared to pay a higher interest on those. And we'll also um, be getting our credit card bill at least 21 days before our payment is due. No, and then what happened before was people were getting their credit their bills too late to make the payment on time and getting penalized. Yes, getting penalized exactly. Uh-huh. So before it used to be 14 days. Um, mm-hmm. Now it's 21 days, mm-hmm. and this bill will have to come around the same time every month. And if your bill is due maybe on the weekend, you have until the following business day by 5 p.m. to pay that bill. Mm-hmm. So you get a little more time to make your payments. And what also is great, what I like about it, is that this new legislation protects consumers under the age of 21 by making them show that they are able to make their payments. Mm-hmm. And if they cannot, at least have a co-signer who's willing to take on the responsibility of that card if the younger adult um, defaults on their credit card uh, debt. Mm-hmm. So that's a good thing. Well, it seems like there are a lot of very sensical things i mean i it seems to me as an ex lender myself that uh as a lender i would have wanted to know they could repay me in the first place why does the why do credit cards have to be forced to tell you know to, um to make sure people can repay them i mean as a, you know get a co-signer or you know check out the income i mean why has we gotten so lax as lenders as bankers i guess looking for the quick buck what's happened here why did the, why did we run amok on this this well, whole business well, that's a loaded question, and it's all about, unfortunately, in some cases, uh, profit. And before this, the housing bubble, when it burst, mm-hmm. um, individual and companies, like the banking industry, may have been looking for uh, fast money. 
and they're seeking it, unfortunately, from those who were not financially sound or just risky altogether and uh, lending out money to individuals who probably had no means of repaying it mm-hmm. in the future if their, their economic streams of income uh, dried up. Right. So, unfortunately, that's what we've been dealing with, and mm-hmm. hopefully this credit card act going forward, actually banking industry and the credit card issuers will uh, be more stringent in who mm-hmm. they select to be uh, a participant as a cardholder for their credit cards. They'll ask, what is your income? What, do you, what amount of money do you have in your savings account? Sure. So it will be more strict rules going forward, so it will be harder to get credit. So if you do have credit, um, I've I suggest pay it off or pay on it timely and mm-hmm. maintain it because it will be more difficult to get it in the future as a personal consumer. Mm-hmm. Does, is there any uh, legislation here that caps the rates, or have those rates been capped at sort of uh, termed, uh, what is it, usury laws in the past, or what? Have rates gone up at all as a result of this? Oh, definitely. Well, with and this, yeah, with this legislation, it will probably cost the banking industry as much as fifty billion dollars in lost revenue between now and 2015. Mm-hmm. So, as a result, to make up for the losses, um, card issuers and bank industry are just trying to find ways to make a profit. So, mm-hmm. as a result, that means hiking APRs, and there is no cap on these APRs for your credit card. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can go up as high as they see fit. Back in 1978, the Supreme Court deregu- had a deregulated um, the interest rate that banks can mm-hmm. charge. So as a result, they can go high, 40, 50, even almost 60%. Is that a fact? Well, I mean, are, are these you know, household name banking institutions actually charging that much? Yes. Yeah. Well, they're not, maybe not household, but they do exist in the uh-huh. country, definitely. Oh, yeah, yeah, I mean, it sounds like what you'd see with the sort of, you know, mafioso type of um, activities, right? I mean, those are, I mean, break your kneecaps sort of. Unfortunately, it's true, but these rates are being applied to those who are the the riskier of the um, cardholders, where they want to make sure their their premise is by charging this high rate, it is allowing those who may not have ever been able to get a credit card to have a credit card, and but they're going to not take this risk on themselves, mm-hmm. the banking industry, so they're going to charge a higher rate for them to have it. If they didn't charge this high rate, then um, people with uh, a lower FICO score probably wouldn't get a credit card in sure. the first place. Well, let me ask you this, Amber. If you're a person like Mrs. Taylor and I, we pay off, we use our credit cards simply as a means of payment. We never allow them to accumulate balances on them. We pay them every month. Are we going to be penalized as a result of this? Are we going to pay more fees? Uh, well, fees is one of the key terms we'll have to get used to. Mm-hmm. And for those who don't use their credit or have a card that's dormant with no activity for about 12 months, you, it, more than likely you will see a fee just mm-hmm. to have that card. So you'll, you'll, there will be annual fees reintroduced that used to be uh, around many, many, many years ago. Now they're coming back. Mm-hmm. So you have to pay a fee to have the card. So those who don't use it will be charged, yes. So and there's also um, card companies who will charge you for using your um, card out of the country. So they'll and they may have raised the rate on how much that fee would be. So there's mm. going to be numerous fees in different ways mm. uh, applied to make up for this lost revenue. So if I go to Canada and decide to buy some Canadian dollars at my ATM machine or use it to buy something, I might be I might be penalized or or. I might pay an extra fee for that. Yeah, you'll pay an extra percentage fee. If, oh. it, if it was maybe, who knows, it could have been yeah. 1%, now you'll pay 2% or 3%, yeah. something like that. Mm. 
Well, that's very interesting. Are there are there some websites where people maybe this is some work that you do on an ongoing basis? Is there are there websites or do you provide information on a regular basis in your reports to the Weiss Group that might keep people informed about what's going on in the credit card industry? Are there websites that might give people an idea of where they can go for competitive credit card um, issuers? Well, first of all, for the best information on this whole new act, please visit federalreserve.gov and click on the Consumer Information tab. Mm -hmm. Um, That's one of the first places to go. And, of course, any of the financial websites, if you want to mention CNN Money or CNC, Mm -hmm. they'll give you up-to-date information on any new changes or or what's different is happening with the um, credit card industry. It's always a good place to go. Mm -hmm. And, of course, moneyandmarkets.com, which is my company's website, um, periodically we do make updates and alerts for for our um, subscribers for free with our, our free investment um, daily newsletter. Well, thank you, Amber. I think you've given us a lot of information. I'm sure there's a lot more you could tell us, uh, but it certainly is um, important to people. I mean, almost everybody uses credit cards in one way or another. Use them responsibly. I, obviously, people are being forced to by uh, by the economy to use use their credit cards uh, more wisely. I think you've given a glimmer of hope here in that uh, I know that we need to curtail our spending and we need to save more as a country in order to get back in a positive footing. I hope I hope that's not going to take too many more years to come, but I sort of sense it might. But in any event, it sounds like we're headed in the right direction, Amber, and I thank you very much for giving us some information on credit cards and, and how people can be smart about using them and what they might be expecting in the future. So thanks again, and uh, and uh, people can keep up with Amber's work by, where is that again, Amber? At moneyandmarkets.com. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being with us and sharing that information with us. Folks, don't go away because we're going to come right back after the break. Next up, we'll be talking to, uh, to the CEO of a very interesting company, a sponsor on this show. And so uh, you're not going to want to miss his story. The stock, I believe, is selling at about five cents, this mystery stock. And we'll be right back after the break to tell you about the company. Is it is it really selling at its value, five cents, or is there some hidden value here? We're going to come right back and learn more about this mystery company as soon as the break. Thanks again, and we'll be right back. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Merex Gold, with 800 square kilometers of contiguous permits. Merex and exploration partner IM Gold have spent $11 million on the advanced stage Surabaya Gold Project in Mali. Merex's indicated gold resource is based on 4% of the mineralized Surabaya megastructure. An aggressive 20,000 meters of drilling will begin to determine the true size of the Surabaya Gold deposit. For more information about Merex Gold, visit us on the web at www.merexgold.com. That's M-E-R-R-E-X gold.com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard, it's just a love ride. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questions at gmail.com. 
That's questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Each week we make available time uh, for companies on Jay's watch list uh, to tell you about. Jay's watch list is a list of companies that I am taking a good look at for possible inclusion in my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks newsletter. And you can go to jayswatchlist.com. That's jayswatchlist without an apostrophe, .com, not only to see the names of companies that are on my radar screen, but also to learn more about each of them, as there is quite a bit of information on that site. And Jay's watch list also has the links to the company's website, so you can go right from Jay's watch list into the company's websites and learn more about each of those companies. In any event, today, I'm happy to have with me Ian Foreman. He's the president of Yale Resources Limited. Yale Resources Limited trades on, in Toronto under the symbol YLL, 66.7 million shares, selling at a mere five and a half cents earlier today, at least as I looked at the uh, at the ticker, and the market cap is only there for only about $3.7 million. So now, lest you think that stock selling for five cents must not be worth anything, because that's the process that most people go through. They say it's a five-cent stock, penny stock, don't, don't pay any attention to it. I'd like to tell you that last week, uh, a couple of weeks ago, actually, I had lunch with a hedge fund manager who wanted to talk to me because he said, you know, Jay, there are certain areas that we think are very inefficient. That is, the markets are not recognizing hidden values with these companies. And they said they think the mining sector is one of those. And I absolutely agree with that. And the reason for that is because unless you can make a brokerage firm a lot of money, unless you're going to do a big financing or whatever, they don't really want to pay attention to you. They don't send their research analysts out. They don't write big reports. They don't tell their they don't tell their uh, their clients about these companies. And so uh, lots of these companies go unnoticed. And that is the beauty, I think, of small newsletter writers like myself, others that are really uh, really looking over for, for some very, very undervalued companies. And I think just looking at Yale Resources on the surface, at least, it looks to me like a very, very undervalued stock with five and a half cents, 3.7 million market cap. So I want to thank Ian Foreman. He's the president of, of Yale Resources. He's with me now. Ian, welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Thank you, Jay. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, Ian, as I'm looking over your company's brochure, the company's information that you put out, you make the following bullet points you, on your, on your um, nice, colorful brochure. You say the, you, that Yale has over 300 square kilometers of land holdings in Mexico. Uh, multiple historic mines have been there. I suppose lots of those are, are mom-and-pop mines that were mined historically, uh, traditionally very, the way it happens in, Mex- must, uh, in much of Mexico and South America. You have um, you know, mom-and-pops have operated and, and fed their families and made good money sometimes with small mining operations, but you've got those dotted throughout your 300-square-kilometer land mass. Uh, you say that there's a potential for near-term production and also, there's some other good things happening in the way of infrastructure and that you guys are aggre- aggressively exploring. Well, tell us something, Ian. Does this uh, five-cent stock price, does it reflect value? I mean, is the market telling us something, or is the market just asleep? Well, that, that's a, that's a uh, topic for, for uh, uh, a much larger conversation. But to, to, to encapsulate that, um, as, as president of Yale, as, as someone who's been actively working uh, in Mexico with Yale Resources for three years, um, 
I think it would be uh, irresponsible of me to say that we were anything but undervalued. Uh, I think that we have been working diligently, uh, certainly through 2009, which, which was, as all of your listeners know, was an incredibly difficult year. And we've emerged as a stronger, more uh, agile, aggressive company because of uh, the lessons we've learned. Mm-hmm. So with regards to uh, the share price, I think maybe your point of looking at the market cap is a much more significant way to value the company. Mm-hmm. And if we have any success on our projects, um, I think your, your listeners can, can really um, do the math themselves with regards to what the potential from a, just a market cap standpoint would be. Sure. Now, Ian, you're uh, employing the prospector generator model, and our listeners do know something about that because we have another sponsor, uh, Riverside Resources, on our uh, who have talked to their uh, to, you know, on this show, and they've told us. So, our listeners know about the prospector generator model, where you really preserve your cash. It's a very successful, the most successful model in the in the junior resource sector, actually. Um, so could you give us an idea? You have a couple of flagship properties in Mexico. You have a lot of different prospects, obviously, over 300 square kilometers. But do you have a couple of flagships that you'd like to highlight and tell our listeners a little bit about? Certainly. Uh, we've, got, we've got currently uh, six uh, projects in Mexico. We had seven, but um, a partner has exercised their option, and uh, we have transferred our interest in the property. We had a, a 73% interest in the property. Um, the other uh, partner in that uh, project in Zacatecas is Impact Silver Corp. Mm-hmm. Um, we've now transferred ownership to, to our partner, and we now uh, own half a million shares mm-hmm. in that partner, and, and we wish them the most success in the world. Uh, we think as a, uh, a portion of the project generator uh, model, uh, is we are very keen on becoming uh, shareholders in our partners. So we, we choose our partners carefully as well, and we think uh, on an ongoing basis that's a uh, potential for, for significant financings into the company, non-dilutive financings, I mm-hmm. must admit. Sure. Uh, with regards to what we currently have, um, our, we have, we have three, uh, three key projects. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the key projects is optioned out at the moment. We currently have two projects optioned out. We are talking with a number of companies about uh, our, our current projects, and we're looking at new projects. But currently, the Eureka project is, um, is really a project that, that uh, garners a lot of attention for us. Uh, it is um, 40 kilometers in length, and the, the neighbor to the south is a little company called Gold Corp. I think you've heard of them. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, their El Sozal project with the El Sozal gold mine um, is our neighbor to the, to the south. The actual mine is 10 kilometers from our property boundary. Mm-hmm. And then the northern boundary of the property is uh, Kimber Resources Monterde project. Sure. Mm-hmm. And we have uh, the land in between the two. Mm-hmm. We have nine known targets uh, that, that we have defined as uh, mineralized targets. We've looked at uh, over 60 historic workings on the project. And uh, about a week and a half, two weeks ago, we announced that we've just started on behalf of our partner a four- to five-week work program uh, on, on the project that is going to be looking at five of those known targets. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the 
really, there's only a couple of things I like about the Eureka project. Um, one of them is size. At over 200 square kilometers, it's, it's, a, it's a huge project. And two is its postal code, its area. Uh, you find mines where other people have found mines before mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. And we have a huge land package in one of the most prolific areas in Mexico. Um, and so why make it any more complicated than that? Now, Ian, are we looking at gold primarily as a gold and gold um, the, and the, silver, gold and silver? Or what the mineralization at uh, Eureka uh, is both. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have uh, targets that are, are gold-rich, and we have targets that are silver-rich. For example, at, at San Pedro, we have announced results of uh, over an ounce of gold, uh, over, over a meter, a meter and a half width in veins. And in the El Rosario target, um, our highlight sample is eight kilos of, of silver over, over an hour width. So wow. we, have, we have the both. We have, we have the, the gold targets and we have the silver targets mm-hmm. uh, in, um, in the project. And at El Rosario, there's also significant gold credits locally up to multiple grams. Uh, in the neighboring um, valley, where the Eureka Valley is the valley over from the, the Batopilas area, where mm-hmm. uh, a lot of companies have had success, mag silvers in there. And uh, what we've noted is that when you have the gold uh, values associated with silver on surface, those are the, the, the targets that tend to have uh, greater depth potential. And so we are have now taken that target to the drill-ready stage. And um, I would uh, anticipate that after this next field program, um, our, our partner uh, will be uh, performing a drill program. They have a commitment to spend half a million dollars on the project in the next 12 months. So do you, uh, how is your cash position at this point in time, and are you going to need to raise capital? Because obviously at $0.05, cents, it's not a very good uh, situation, so we'd like to see you get, raise your shares probably before you raise capital. What yeah, I am. We, like we, we have financed. We're um, in, in uh, cash and securities. We've got uh, just over half a million dollars in the bank. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, for, for some listeners, that might not sound like a lot, uh, like a, like a lot of money, but for us, that, that's, that's a that's, it's a good, good quantity of money, and the reason is, is that we have uh, the, the, the business model, as you'd introduced, is the, the project generator uh, model. Other people's money. We're using other people's money. So right. our money is put towards infrastructure mm-hmm. and acquisitions primarily. Mm-hmm. We're looking at a number of opportunities, and by having projects optioned out, we have the capacity to then be bringing on new projects. And right. I, I look at it in, a, in a, a bit more of an entrepreneurial view, and that is make the comparison to how an airline looks at airplanes. If okay. an airplane isn't flying, it's not generating income for the airline. Right. So if we're not working on a project... It doesn't have the capacity to generate value for our shareholders. Right. And it's, of just, it's just dead property. In fact, in reality, it's a liability because you have to pay taxes and various costs and such things. So you're just putting money into it. 
Well, the beauty of your model then is, of course, is that you're getting other people to come in and spend their money to earn a portion, a joint venture interest in your project, and that way you can keep your powder dry. That's why your half a million dollars can go a long ways, and it wouldn't be a lot of money if you were going to have to sink all of, you know, pay all, all of the uh, exploration expenditures. But, uh, Ian, we only have about a minute left here, and I want to ask you about your management team because management is always very important. Can you give our listeners just a little bit of background on yourself and, and other key people and what sort of track records they've had? If you can do all that in a minute, that would be great. Uh, starting with myself, um, I, I've been a geologist for uh, 18 years, and uh, I've worked on large and small-scale projects. And uh, in Peru, I was a uh, project geologist for putting a 400-ton-per-day gold mine into production. So I have, mm-hmm. I have some production experience as well. And, uh, but what, what gets me up in the morning is exploration and discovery. Mm-hmm. Um, we have uh, Lindsay Bottomer. On our sure. on our board, Lindsay Bottomer uh, may be well known to some of your listeners. Yes. He's uh, currently a uh, senior member of uh, Entree Gold. Mm-hmm. We have uh, Luca Riccio, who is a uh, PhD geologist, uh, became quite well known for his involvement in Crystal X and and taking Las Cristinas from eight to thirteen million ounces. Mm-hmm. We have David. David Hall on board, who is the president of Orizon. Yeah. Uh, so we have a board member who is a, a member of a producing mining company. Mm-hmm. And uh, then there, our fifth member is uh, Edmundo Uribe, who is a, a Mexican national living in the States. And he ran uh, CIL explosives in Mexico for a number of decades. So he's very well connected in the Mexican mining industry. Well, that sounds great. I'm, unfortunately, I'm going to have to cut you off, Ian, because we've run out of time. We're going to have you back to talk about some of your exploration progress going forward. So I want to thank you. Uh, uh, in the meantime, investors uh, can access Yale Resources information and their website by going through jayswatchlist.com jayswatchlist.com without an apostrophe. We're going to come up uh, now on the commercial break, but when we come back, we're going to have Mish Shedlack. He's going to be here to talk about his views on deflation. So those of you who listen to, to, to Mark Faber and Pat Gorman might want to hang around and hear another side of the story from Mish Shedlack. We'll be right back after the break. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Have you been acquiring physical gold, silver, and coins? Are you receiving the best price and the best service you can? Why not work with the most recommended precious metals company in the country? Resource Consultants is recommended by over 20 newsletter writers, several websites, and countless stockbrokers and financial planners. Call them now and find out how they can help you. 800-494-4149. Or visit them on the web at www.buysilvernow.com. That's 800-494-4149. They'll be waiting for your call. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard, it's just a love and ride. 
You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am Jay Taylor, your host, and for the last half hour of today's show, I have with me Ms. Shedlack. He has no doubts in his mind that we are in a deflationary environment. You heard both Mark Faber earlier in today's show and Pat Gorman argue that we are facing what they think is a hyperinflationary environment, and I'll be shocked if Mish would agree with that, but we're going to pick his brains in just a second. I just want to let you know, those of you who may not have been introduced to Mish in the past, uh, he has managed Sitka Pacific Capital, which has provided investors with an alternative to the passive management of mutual funds, the limited asset allocation models used by most financial advisors, and the uh, high fees of hedge funds. Uh, Sitka Pacific Capital Management specializes in absolute returns investment strategies that pay special attention to risk and risk management. What a novel idea. By applying his understanding of debt-induced deflation under uh, Michael's management, Sitka Capital enjoyed an 11.3% return, while the S&P 500 lost 11.2%. I'm not sure if those are updated. We'll ask Mish in just a second. But those returns have also been achieved with far less volatility than the S&P 500. In other words, a lot less uh, risk in terms of uh, movement uh, in the value of the investment. The fund invests in domestic stocks, foreign stocks, commodities, and yield-orientated funds and trusts. It invests in uh, individual stocks as well as exchange-traded funds, Foreign stock investments are usually through funds, but SDRs are also used. Some hedging strategies are also used to reduce risk. Well, that's that's what Mike Shedlack does. Welcome, Mike, to our show, or you go by the name Mish, really. Yeah, uh, Mish is fine. That's quite an introduction, by the way. Um, the I don't manage the funds, though. Um, I uh, am a partner okay. in Sitka Pacific Capital Management. My fund, my partner Brian McCauley, the founder of Sitka, makes the trading decisions. But we talk all the time on fundamentals, on um, uh, stock market, on breath, on technical indicators, on various fundamental factors, and we're generally aligned in how we see the markets. Um, but uh, that aside, it's uh, always a pleasure to be on the Jay Taylor Show. Thank you. Thank you, Mish. It's always a pleasure to have you. Now, I want to ask you, with regard to the direction of the markets right now, we had this horrendous decline, you know, with following, especially following the Lehman Brothers failure, and then we had, you know, it took us down to about March of 2009. Now we've had quite a run-up. Uh, is this thing about, I mean, is this, are we on, on to better times again now, uh, Mike, or is this, uh, or is this a false um, I don't think so. We we certainly have had um, one of the biggest rallies in history, but if you look back historically, we can see that the same thing happened during the Great Depression. There was about a 50% bounce or so then. We exceeded that this time, 70% this time, Um, but the initial plunge this time was at least as big as well. So, um, you know, we'll see. The thing is, the the credit stress problems have not gone away. The... uh, all the bailouts have helped the financial sector, added some liquidity to the financial sector, but you still have consumers deeply in debt. You uh, still have consumers underwater in their houses. You still have a job um, unemployment rate of 
almost 10 percent. Actually, I think it's it's well above that. Uh, I don't trust these latest downward revisions in the unemployment rate. So all the none of the structural components have been fixed. And on top of that, and this is key, Jay, is we have an attitude change. We have a massive change in the attitudes of boomers heading into retirement. They now realize that their home is no longer going to provide their retirement, that they're downsizing their risks, they're trying to reduce their leverage, they're downsizing their lifestyle, and we have all of these boomers wanting to retire and quite frankly, can't retire because they don't have enough money. So they're cutting back on personal expenditures. Just a huge, massive attitude change that dwarfs the pissy amount of, of money, stimulus money, actually, that Congress is throwing at this. Well, that's interesting you say that. We had Amber Dakar from the Weiss Group on with us earlier in this hour, and she was telling us exactly what you're saying in terms of credit card behavior. Individuals have sharply cut back their expenditures. Their, uh, I think in many cases the credit cards have been taken away from them and not been renewed, but in any event, the amount of credit outstanding. And, and she was sort of a bit hopeful that, um, you know, this is the direction things need to take. And, but what I wasn't able to get from Amber uh, a real good answer from her, um, because that's not really her expertise, I suppose, is that, uh, you know, how much further do we have to go? How much more retrenchment from individuals? Because when I talk to my banker friends, you know, the guys that, that work on in New York City, uh, the major banks and so forth, they say, oh, Jay, you worry too much. Uh, don't you see that consumers are cutting back now? Their savings rate has gone up. Therefore, we can start uh, looking for some good times again. What do you say to that? Well, looking for some good times, uh, I think on the same basis, Japan was looking for good times for the last 20 years. Did they come? The, we are entering a secular cycle here, not a secular boom like we've seen on some of these last recessions. This one's completely different. This one's credit-based. This isn't your typical um, recession boom where all of a sudden we're just going to go flying back up to new highs. Japan went sideways to down for 20 years. We're in in the first 10 years of that here in the United States. It's a mistake to think that this can't last for another 10 years. In fact, it's a mistake to think that we can't go down for another 10 years. I don't know whether we do that or not, but what we can say is, um, on a valuation perspective alone, look at what's priced into this stock market rally right now is the expectation that earnings are going to improve, that consumers are going to start buying, that housing is going to come back. I think all of those are false. Every one of those is, is a false premise. The, we've just at the very initial stages of this attitude change of, of away from consumption and risks, towards less risk and more savings. That more savings, by the way, that money will uh, end up going in and supporting the Treasury market. So all these people that think, oh, my God, Treasury yields are going to go to the moon. Yeah. We're going to have an increase. That, that, that savings is going to go directly to support uh, uh, U.S. Treasuries. So I don't see a big rise in yields. I, this whole idea of hyperinflation, when we've got as much debt as we do, is just simply wrong, Jay. Yeah. Well, I certainly, I certainly understand the arguments uh, on both sides. I put the, the question to Mark Faber. I said, Mark, uh, every time that we uh, have another stimulus bill, uh, we're creating more debt, and debt is deflationary. And so what we're seeing is 
the need to print more and more money at a faster and faster rate or else we go over the cliff. And he agreed with that, but then he said that's exactly what they'll do. Okay. They will be able to print enough. They will be able to get it out. Uh, and what I don't quite understand, what I have a difficulty understanding on the inflation argument side, uh, and I guess you're not the right person to ask. I should have asked, uh, I should have asked Mark Faber and, and James Turk and some of these people. But um, um, how, do you, how do you get the average consumer to spend a lot or to, or to create demand in the economy when you're passing out all of this stimulus to Goldman Sachs? The, um, well, let's look at this two ways. The, uh, first off, there's, uh, close to $50 trillion worth of debt out there. So the, the Fed has, through all these various swap programs, you know, let's say, it's, you know, a trillion dollars to banks. But those swap programs, those have to be swapped back. I mean, the, the Fed is playing a, a pretend game. The, they took, uh, dodgy assets as, as collateral. Pretend that those things are worth full value. Give treasuries to the banks. Well, the banks know that that that, that swap is not worth what the Fed's marking it at. The Fed knows what that's not worth what it's marked at, and the banks see that uh, this attitude change. They see consumers willing to walk away from houses. They see consume. They see people, businesses willing to walk away from commercial real estate. Hmm. Not only that, they're capital impaired. So that's why we've got this 1.8 trillion dollars of, uh, or is it up to 2.4 now uh, of of excess reserves that the inflationists like James Turk will tell you, my gosh, this money's just waiting to come into the market. Well, wait till this money comes into the market. That's not the way the market works. Uh, Austrian economist, Australian economist Steve Keen has talked about this many times, and, and so have I on, on my blog. What actually happens is credit expands first, and the reserves come later. Mm-hmm. So all this money that's supposedly sitting out there waiting to come in, into the market as excess reserves is, is never going to make it. All it's doing is contributing to an exit problem down the road for, for, for Bernanke to unwind this stuff. So, but there's no immediate concern that this money is going to come in, not when, when capital uh, concerns uh, uh, when banks are as capital impaired as they are. I do understand one argument that 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 Turk and that Faber and that the other hyperinflationists will will add, but it's not from the Fed. The Fed printing money. The Fed could print twenty trillion dollars tomorrow, and it wouldn't do anything unless that money made it into, into the economy. It's just going to sit out there as excess reserves, essentially doing nothing. So the money has to get spent. The Fed cannot spend the money. So this is not a Fed issue. This is a congressional issue. You know, could Congress? The Fed can't. The Fed cannot give money away to, to, yeah. to consumers. Congress could. But look at the attitudes in Congress. Look at the change uh, uh, in, in this last election from, from, from Massachusetts. Look at the bickering now. Look at the concern over the national debt. So, you know, yes, it, it's high and mighty, and a trillion dollars is just amazingly ridiculous. But at the same time, debt in the United States to GDP is is about 80 or 90 percent. In Japan, it's 200 percent of GDP. So we can go on for a number of years this way mm-hmm. before it matters. Is it going to matter? 
Yes, I agree with Mark Faber. This is going to matter. The question is, in the timing of this, Jay, mm-hmm. I don't think it's going to matter now. I don't think it's going to matter next year. I don't even think it might matter five years from now. Is it going to matter? Yes. L- but, you know, let's keep this stuff in, in perspective and look at Japan for how high these debt-to-GDP ratios can get before it matters. Right. So, well, and, and Japan, uh, Mishi, also has an aging population situation, much as we do. Uh, Japan, the aging, we have Worse, a much maybe. better demographic. Yeah, better than them, but we still have than, an aging than Japan. We have, they've got xenophobia. They, they don't allow uh, uh, immigrations. It's a very closed society. And the interesting thing about Japan is... Uh, their pension funds, their uh, uh, corporate structures—they are now because they're because of the aging demographics. They have to draw down on those savings. Mm-hmm. Japan is now a net seller of of uh, treasuries. Okay, so and at one percent, how do they raise money, Jay? Yeah, so it, we don't have that same problem to the same extent. That they, but we do have an aging boomer uh, situation, which is putting a damper on demand, though. That, that on puts spending. a damper. Oh, absolutely, that puts yeah. a damper on demand. Yeah. Ha- however, unlike in Japan, the saving rate is falling. Mm-hmm. In the United States, the savings rate is going up. Is going up. Well, you have you still do not have an inflationary problem in Japan, though, in spite of all of that stimulus for so many couple several decades, three decades now. N- right? uh, not yet, and we might uh-huh. not have an inflation problem, but we might have a currency crisis. Mm-hmm. You mean look at what look at what Japan faces in their demographics. You know, look at what happens to interest on the national debt right now. They're rolling this over perpetually. You know, at one. One percent. What happens when that's three percent or four percent? Japan is in a um, much larger world of hurt because they're worse off than the United States in the total amount of debt to GDP. So something's going to blow. I think Japan is going to blow before the U.S. blows. I think there's a hyperinflationary risk, at least from a currency collapse standpoint, mm-hmm. uh, 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 in Japan more than the United States right now. It's mm-hmm. important to keep these problems in perspective. You know, we've got problems in Greece. We've got problems in uh, Ireland. We've got problems in Iceland. We've got problems in Italy. We've got problems in Spain. Huge problems everywhere that people in the United States are too, S- too U.S.-centric focused. They understand the problems here. They don't see the, re- the problems in the rest of the world. Even in Canada, let's you know, take a look at Canada. The, the property bubble in Canada is far bigger than the property bubble here in the United States. Ours, at least, has started to deflate. What does that do to the, uh, the, the value of the Canadian dollar when the, when the uh, Canadian property bubble bursts? What does it do uh, if oil prices decline, you know, back towards forty or fifty dollars? What is what? It, which I think is going to happen. What does that do to the Canadian dollar? What is the, the biggest bubble in the whole world in terms of property? is in the U.K., which is a basket case worse than the United States, and Australia, which also have you know, their own problems. It's important when one looks at these U.S. dollar aspects, and that, you know, you know, with this idea that the U.S. dollar is just going to blow up, I think it's going to remain relatively firm. And mm-hmm. in fact, it might even, the U.S. dollar index might even approach 90 again. Right. So, you know, we'll see. So there's all these factors, and people need to stop being so U.S.-centric when they right. look at problems. 
Well, I, I don't, I don't doubt you're right about that. Let me ask you though. One of the arguments you mentioned, Japan and the currency crisis and a currency collapse that could induce inflation. That, in fact, is what John Williams believes will happen in the U.S. That's his main, that's his main argument for hyperinflation. He says that the U.S. dollar is going to collapse. Now, you just said you think because of all, in part at least, because of all these other problems around the world, the dollar may actually strengthen vis-a-vis the other currencies. And I, I don't have a problem seeing that, honestly. Also, another insight that Bob Hoy brings into this discussion has to do with the senior currency. Bob points out that what's happened always in the last 300 years with senior currencies is that they become stronger during a credit deflation, during a credit collapse, because everybody has to cover their short positions in the currency. But what what would you say to John Williams when he says that the reason we're going to have hyperinflation is because the currency is going to, uh, because the U.S. dollar is going to collapse, given the trillions of dollars that are being spent? I would say listen to Bob Hoy. Uh, uh, Bob Hoy has a better track record than Williams on, this, on these matters. I'm a big fan of Bob Hoy and uh, institutional, analy- institutional investment advisors. Uh-huh. I'm a big fan of Bob Hoy. I think he's got it right. I, I think there's a number of us that are looking this way. Rosenberg, who's really no big fan of the U.S. dollar, is, is aware of uh, these, these problems as well, and he's looking for the U.S. dollar, at least short-term, to strengthen. So, again, we have to put this stuff in, in perspective. We have to look at the amount of stimulus that's, that's actually coming out of Congress, whether or not that stimulus can keep on the same track. I don't think it will. I think there's jitters in Congress right now over the national debt. Obama's paying lip service, you know, nothing in practice yet, but, but it, at, at least they're talking about it. We've got all of these concerns out there. So, you know, people have these fears, you know, that this massive amount of money is just coming in. But mm-hmm. when you look at it in perspective, in the perspective of there's $50 trillion worth of credit that might implode, that's a def- and when it does, that's a deflationary force. Mm-hmm. And then we balance that with, with you know, $1 trillion, you know, uh, uh, stimulus package. You know, they don't balance out. Yeah. And uh, also, with the savings rate going up, uh, uh, it's it's questionable whether or not Bernanke is even going to you know have to you know print per se that's sure. not covered the sure. the last auction results of 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 the Fed auctions have got you know I, people say oh my God China stopped buying U S Treasuries look at how bad that is I say my gosh look at how good this is mm-hmm. uh, 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 the the Treasury auctions are going well. Mm-hmm. Well, and Mish, the buying is all in the United we're, States. We're just, we're just about out of time, Mish. I, have, I want to ask you one more idea here. Actually, 30 seconds. I guess I can't get to it. But here, uh, Robert McHugh, Dr. McHugh, has said the one way that they could really turn this around would be to uh, give us a rebate on our taxes for the last three years. In other words, this is the fiscal stuff you're saying Congress could do. You put the money in the hands of the masses, we could really turn back and get things going from the bottom up, get, stim- get demand going. And What's your response to that? I, I think people would seconds. use it to pay. Uh, people would use it to pay down debt. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, net, net. He's right. That would that would be an inflationary force. Mm-hmm. But people would use that to pay down debt, not to go out there and buy things. It would not get the economy coming. But they won't do it because banks d- w- uh, won't like it. The Republicans yep. won't like it. Banks will not want to be paid back with cheaper dollars. 
Okay, thank you, Mish. Let, uh, tell people where they can follow your work. Oh, um, I go by the nickname of Mish. That's spelled M-I-S-H. The best way to find me is just do a Google search for Mish. My blog is globaleconomicanalysis.blogspot.com. That's a mouthful, so just do a Google search for Mish. It'll take you straight to my blog. And it's a pleasure to be on the show once again, Jay. Well, thank you very much, Mish. I'm sorry we ran out of time. We have to have you back again. We'll talk to you some more in the future. But we are... Uh, we have run out of time. I just want to thank each of you for listening to the show. Uh, call Claudio Bossi for some uh, low-priced uh, trial subscriptions to my letter, Chen Lin's letter, Roger Wiegand's letter. Next week, we're going to have Martin Gross. He is the author of National Suicide. He's going to be our special guest with us. Uh, until then, I want to thank uh, our producer, my uh, senior executive producer, Tacey Trump, Ruben Columbia operations manager, Justin Jackman, my engineer, for making this show logistically possible. And thanks again to each of you for listening. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now the thing about time is that time isn't really real. It's just your point of view. How does it feel for you? Einstein said